and welcome back to another episode of Brain Tools, Brain Tools episode 34. As always, joined by my friend Kieran. How are you doing? Very good, my friend. Very good. How are you? Going pretty well, um, considering considering lockdown, which is why I'm interested in this topic today, to be honest. It's a it's a very interesting, very important one to happen because, look, I'm not going to lie, going through my feed at the moment, scrolling through Facebook or scrolling through Instagram, there's a lot of polarizing views going on, particularly in Australia at the moment, given what's going on with lockdown and so on. And we always talk about this word of empathy, right? It's meant to be the glue that brings people together. Without it, people become very, very irritable with each other largely, and they disagree poorly. And I think the example is exemplified through through COVID in Australia, but just COVID generally. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's one that's very salient right now in how to deal well with things. Yep. And it's also one of those corporate buzzwords, which is just pushed around. You know, there's a massive push for, for empathy skills coming out of university. There's a massive push for empathy and corporate employees and the training programs. But I always feel like there's a there's always a gap between the understanding and, and the practice. It's so true because I, I've been told this and to be fair, hey, I'm going to put my hand up, might need to work on it. And a few people do, but we're always told be more empathetic. And you sort of sit mm. there and like, I appreciate this, right? But what does that actually mean? <laughs> what does it actually mean to oh, be a right. little bit more empathetic and more on it uh, and so on? And then, as you said, there's a disconnect between telling someone that, knowing doing and doing well. And uh, that seems like all four of those things don't necessarily line up all the time. They don't. And taking it to almost a more of a personal level, I've had moments in the last common five, six years when I was really curious about becoming more empathetic mm. because I realized it would have you know benefits for my job, in my sales role, um, in my other customer-facing roles. But then you go out and you try to figure out how to be more empathetic and run into a brick wall. It's like, you know, oh, great. I will be more empathetic today. What does that actually mean? So that gap I felt, and that's kind of part of the reason why I thought today's episode uh, would be a good topic to cover because I know I'm not alone in wanting to be more empathetic, but not understanding how. Absolutely. And it's the mechanics, right? Like, and we're going to cover mm. obviously the why it's important to be empathetic and so on. But, but that how, that skill-based nature of it all is if you deconstruct it, what does that look like and how do you actually get better with better at it? And there's this author. Um, I don't know if you ever read this. You read The Reluctant Fundamentalist when you're at school? I did not. No. No. Educate me. I will, I'll go, we'll go through it on a later date. But Mosan Hamid, he was actually the author of it. And he basically has a quote in that resonates quite strongly where he says, empathy is about finding echoes of another person in yourself. And I think that is actually the big starting point more than anything is we talk about empathy, but it does actually start quote unquote or from within and obviously starts in your brain. And so importantly, Sam, we've got to start off with what mm. is empathy? What is <laughs> what is this thing? Exactly. Definitional wars all the time. And I think we've always been given this analogy, right? It's putting yourself in someone's shoes, right? That's what we normally said. And I think if I was to put this in a sentence, it's like, I understand what you're going through, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if this is quite right. Now, I'm not, I'm not pushing back on the, the word empathy itself, but I think a really good measure if we're talking about true empathy, right, is to actually ask a question, what other life would you like to live? Because if you want to live someone else's life, right, as a starting point, you actually have to trade for everything. It's not just the situation. It's not just their number of Instagram likes. It's not just all these little things that we see. It's everything else. It's their viewpoint, which is informed by all their experiences, their adversity, their environment, and it's all their time on planet Earth. And the reason I want to start there is it's very easy to say, I understand what you're going through. 
But unfortunately, you haven't been walking in, quote unquote, those shoes for the 25, 30, 35 years that have been going through. And so I think I just want to put that first and foremost and get your thoughts on it. It's a really important point to consider because not only can you can't, you can't ever truly live someone else's life and have the same brain activity that they do, but also just telling someone, oh, I, I get it or I understand what you're saying usually doesn't help from my experience. Oh, in the exact same way. And you don't, and people are not saying it out of malice. Largely they're saying it because they don't know what to say a lot of the time. And it's like, you know, a space filler, so to speak. But I think putting that point on you, just making the acknowledgement, you never really truly can understand Mm. someone's viewpoint simply because to your great point, the amount of environmental or sensory environment interaction with your brain that has occurred to get to where you currently are, that's where the uniqueness comes from. And so I think starting with it, it is a factor of, I understand, I'm trying to understand what you're going through. And I think that word trying is probably the big caveat with it. But I want to also highlight with you the the difference between empathy and compassion because they're often Mm. mixed. And I think just to define compassion in a sentence, it's I can understand your distress. I want to help and I can. And that's a slightly different thing to empathy where we're saying, I understand what you're going through. That slight disconnect means that obviously empathy is really important to inform compassion and why a lot of people say compassion is empathy in motion or action. Mm. And there's also a distinction between empathy and sympathy too not only that with compassion and sympathy being you know you're feeling sorry for someone else you, you're sympathetic towards what they they're feeling but you're never truly feeling what they're feeling yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head and i think there'd be some looking at all the research this is only something that's really taken place as you know mate over the past 15 20 years if that what's going on in the brain is always a, a fascinating one when it comes to these things Ooh, it is and it's it's why we're here it's why we do brain tools <laughs> break it down <laughs> When you think about the most empathetic person you know, Mm. usually they have a couple of commonalities. Um, Usually they're quite emotional people who are in touch with their feelings. Usually they are really, really good at um, being observative and noticing cues in different aspects of other people. But also usually they really, really feel what other people feel. And the reason I say that is because when we ask what actually makes empathy happen in the brain, if you were to scan people's brains while they were being empathic or while they're experiencing empathy, what you'll see is that the parts of the brain is responsible for social processing um, and for pain and for emotional processing, a whole bunch of reasons from the amygdala, the insula, ACC, et cetera, they're all active. Mm. And why I say that is because what empathy really is, is actually sharing. It's Mm. actually sharing of an emotional affective state. And how do we get to that? Well, what actually happens is when we're feeling a true level of empathy for another person, our brain replicates a similar state to what they're in. So we've talked a lot about this before, uh, neural coupling or neural synchronization or mirroring. It's the same kind of process, where basically your brain, brain replicates what it thinks the other person brain is doing so that you're able to feel the same feelings they have and this is a reactive thing that we do in almost real time and it's really really interesting because some scientists um about 10 years ago they went and had a look at the neural basis of empathy Mm. uh, in a paper that we'll link in the show notes and what they found that was one of the core commonalities across the brains of all these people who were expressing empathy was pain Mm. The, the pain center of the brain was lighting up. So in a way, what makes empathy in the brain, it's 
the sharing of emotions, the replication of how the other person's feeling by recreating their brain state and then sharing their pain. Yeah, and it links quite quite nicely with the all the research that's been done into um, areas of the areas that are associated with the brain in terms of still getting verbal pain or emotional pain when you're inflicted through bullying, and obviously when you experience actual physical pain when you cut yourself. And and as you said, that neural synchronization. I'm I'm just trying to think through it. Like again, just going rogue here from an evolutionary perspective, brainstorming. What do you think is sort of the evolutionary basis for empathy, or what it, what could be? Just uh, just to play it. So I'm not basing this off any research, but I've, I've read a couple of pieces of developmental um, psychology or evolutionary psychology. And from what I recall, the, the basis is that empathy helped us to um, communicate and mm. collaborate better in groups yeah, and therefore sure. survive by understanding each other. If we weren't able to understand another person's emotional state, which is that basis of empathy, then we'd probably be pissing off people all the time and there'd be fights people would die and our species wouldn't survive and thrive like it has. So it's provided this evolutionary advantage in that our human beings are able to understand each other and then communicate in a way that allows us to thrive. Yeah, that, might make, that makes actually so much sense, to be honest with you. Because I'm just thinking, we always talk about the, the Dharma number, 150 people. Mm, but as you yep. said, like the human the home, human species has been such an interesting scaling project, which is the bunch of things that have actually had to come into it to help us. And again, I'm very mindful of like Darwinian bias here. But as you said, the moment language became a thing, then a lot of these things seem to be correlated with it. The communication of emotions, the ability to problem solve. We talk about all these different things. And as you said, empathy being a crucial one. But there are very interesting things, especially studies that occurred in 2013, that actually showed what might prevent us from being empathetic. So while we sort of want to go in the direction of, hey, I want to be empathetic, I want to try to be, there's the intention there, there is some stuff around it which was very interesting. And that was the Journal of Neuroscience in 2013, a bloke called Max Planck and his colleagues, they identified that the tendency to be egocentric, which is, you know, selfish in reality, is innate for human beings, but that there's actually a part of your brain that recognizes a lack of empathy and can autocorrect. This specific part of your brain... Ah, oh, big words, is called the right supramarginal gyrus. And all they basically found here, and again, being mindful that there are probably a few brain areas associated, this just seemed to be one that popped up the most during MRI scans, but empathy is dramatically reduced when this part of our brain sucks. And so this area of our brain is actually crucial to distinguish our own emotional state from other people. And therefore, empathy and compassion can be linked. But this is the key point to note, is that we have a tendency to project our own emotions that we're feeling in that moment onto what the other people may be feeling. And so, as we said, this brain, this brain area showed also that when our pain is numbed, our empathy is also decreased as well. And so one thing that comes up and prevents us from being empathetic is our lack of emotional regulation. Because if you can't regulate your emotions or your impulses in the moment when someone or you have the opportunity to be empathetic, um, you're not positioning yourself for success and then things normally um, cripple as a result. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about the fact that that self-orientation preservation is obviously innately human because how else would we survive if we weren't thinking about ourselves? But then you've also got that fight, fighting against that is this, this social evolution which we kind of touched on before. And it's really interesting to think that empathy is kind of almost a, a regulation of impulses of yeah. like fighting back against some of that. It, that's actually a really good way of putting it, right? Because it, we always talk about the dance when you're trying to be empathetic, as you said. And mm-hmm. always got to remember, we always think that there's just one person involved, which is the other person. There's actually two people. And it's yourself you got to deal with first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> takes two to tango. Takes oh, two to tango. To do the cha-cha well. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're just standing there watching, you're not dancing. Okay. You are not dancing. <laughs> not at all, my friend. <laughs> That's a weird image. Um, <laughs> I The question I always had was, you know, we're always told about empathy and how important it is, but can you actually develop it? Mm, can mate, you improve it? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? That's the big question. That's and a lot of people have made a lot of money trying to say they know this, by the way. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. There's all the training courses out there. I'm sure there's uh, lots of people selling communication skills. Shout out to you guys. Good luck. Go, um, go. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But I think that's the to get to the core of it, the hardest part of empathy is guessing what the other person is thinking, mm-hmm. is to be able to go through that process of this is their experience, this is what they're experiencing right now in the moment, these are things happening to them, this is how I think they'll feel, You know that effective guessing. Turns out this is actually called something. Okay, what's it called? It's called <laughs> theory of mind. Oh, T-O-M. Ooh, theory of mind, T-O-M, yeah, big thing. And, and it's a really big thing in the cognitive neuroscience space and the cognitive psychology space especially when we're looking at developmental psychology and kids growing up, this ability to understand what other people think or project understanding of what they think. And it develops over time naturally. You know, kids aren't born with it, but through the rewiring of their brain, through pruning away certain connections, they develop it. But more importantly than that, theory of mind is actually a skill, mm. like writing or the violin, which means we can improve it. Because so many of the elements of theory of mind, things like reading verbal cues, understanding language, hearing tonality and responding to it, are all things that you can train to get better at. Just as someone can train their ear to be better attuned to a certain note or to be able to listen and speak a foreign language, so too can you start to learn and listen to speak the language of empathy because it is a skill. I think that's a huge thing to take away. Yeah, it's massive as well because then you start to deconstruct like any school you can deconstruct it, as you said, right? Which is empathy starts to be a function of emotion perception. Hey, can I recognize what facial expressions actually mean and represent and actually trace them to what people might be feeling? Can I express my emotions, emotional expression? Can I do so in a way that actually is accurate and specific? We talk about emotional granularity and we've spoken about that on our previous series, uh, Emotions, which was, I think, episode 15 to episode 19. So please feel free to go check that out. But then, as we said, we couple it with emotional regulation and we look at it also in terms of impulse control. And when you look at those four things, it becomes really important that there are actually brain tools for this. So we can look at some oh, brain yeah. tools that look at developing each of the individual skills, which is what we're going to do. And that's what we're going to do next in the brain tools section. It's like we planned it. <laughs> Bang. Now the brain tools section for empathy, for practical brain tools to improve your empathy and build it like the skill that it is. And Sam, before we kick in, just as always, want to provide a little bit of a vignette, a little bit of context before we jump into these. Sprinkle it on, bit of spice. I'm ready for the dust. Now, spice dust, either or. Now, most of the time when we think about empathy, and I think 
in the context, even how we opened this episode, we talked about it from the context of people experiencing negative emotions. You know, people when they're scared, they're angry, they're sad and so on. However, just a little bit of a frame for all the four brain tools that we're about to go through is they can and often should be used when someone is also experiencing positive emotions. Being able to be genuinely Uh, I suppose, happy, but also connect with someone when they're feeling awesome, whether that's they've got a promotion, they've reached a milestone. It's also crucial to broadening your empathy muscle because if you only get good in one facet, you're not missing the entire um, 360 dimensions that you could actually get through. And so putting yourself in someone's shoes, which you've said before, is great. But remember, positive and negative states are also important. Also for A, the contrast between the two, but just the appreciation for the emotion that you're actually being sensitive to, you're experiencing, and you're obviously guiding someone through as well. And that's just the slight little thing I want to put there before we crack in. Oh, chef's kiss. I have never thought of that, honestly, and it makes so much sense. We should be practicing empathy as much in a positive way as a negative way, because I actually think it provides an even deeper point of connection for people, you know? To be able to celebrate people's wins feels amazing, but we don't classify that as empathy. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's, I'll put my hand on, I'll say something that I only really realize lately that I'm not very good at. Um, and I let, mm. we let those pass. But the moment something negative comes up, then I'm, I'm already in. Like I like to think I'm in, I'm present, but can sometimes yeah. blow off, hey, mate, I got promoted. Like you say, oh, yeah, well done, but you don't, you're not even not, you're not inquisitive about it, you don't lean in. So I think that's an important one moving forward. Oh, absolutely. For that connection standpoint, absolutely. 100%. That begins then with a nice segue into brain tool mm-hmm. number one, which is permission-based empathy. Okay. Okay. Yes. Tell me. Marketing spiel. You ready? Permission-based marketing? Let's do it. Same concept, to be fair. But I think when someone comes to us with a problem, mate, they like when we're experiencing some sort of pain, we often leap into action without understanding if they're open to even having the conversation. We don't know what they want. They don't know why they're coming to us. And we can often then cause a sense of defensiveness from the other person. We can worsen the situation and we miss an opportunity to create a space for them to actually move into. And so that's the whole notion of permission-based empathy is before even engaging in the conversation itself, seek their permission to be involved. Don't assume just because they're coming to you that you're ready for you. And so that is the crux of the moment of permission-based empathy. Mm, giving people space rather than forcing things on them. Yeah, 110%. Like it's all good to like ask questions immediately about it, but there's one specific question if we really move this into practice that um, I think has helped me, but also can help a lot of people with this empathy. And it's the following, which is when someone comes to you with something, whether it's positive, negative, whatever it might be, Uttering the following can really help, which is, thanks for telling me how you're feeling. I really appreciate it. Can I ask you a few questions to help me understand a bit better? Mm. And the moment that you ask that, yes, it's a closed question, but it's giving permission. It's getting them to lean in. They'll say yes or no. And if they say no, then you know how to act as a result upon that. You might need to move on and so on. But if they say yes, then at least you have the permission to then move into the level one, level two, level three questions. You know, how are you feeling? What happened? What's going on? Um, And then actually approach that from a, a genuinely curious perspective. And doing this... You give them a sense of control over the situation. You get a micro micro commitment. And mate, I'm actually remembering massively from episodes that you've said before, which is more control someone has, less stress, and you avoid that amygdala hijack altogether. And that's the crux of permission-based empathy. Actually asking permission with a really simple word, uh, simple question, can often lead to better conversations thereafter. Yeah, hit the nail 
on the head. I really like the question you used. And also I was listening to a, a podcast today with uh, Robert Sapolsky, really, really famous um, neuroscientist and um, biologist who studied stress. Mm. And he was talking about this exact fact that, you know, our stress response is directly proportional to our sense of control. And so often you don't think about that, you know, there's an instinct, I feel, for people to go in and dive in and say, oh, you know, what's happening? Tell me all about it. How are you feeling? But this is a really great way of putting the brakes on that a little bit see, to see if the other person's even comfortable talking about it first. Because sometimes that, that wound is too raw or that thing you want them to divulge about, they're just not comfortable with it. Yeah, 100%. Like before you go play a game of tennis, you got to make sure you're on a tennis court, right? Like it's Ooh, it's a uh, sports analogies. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Um, but, but I think that becomes, um, as you said, like an important first starting point, um, and that's brain tool number one: permission-based empathy. <clears throat> wow. Yeah, I, I really like it because I have a similar question I use mm, for it. Please, where I, I'm like, I I'll just ask straight up. Hey, I know it sounds like you it sounds like you're going through some stuff right now. Are you feeling? A certain kind of way do you want to talk about it mm. i just open the floor and it's either a yes or no question um and it's the same thing Love and it. it's uh, also leverages brain tool number two okay talk cool. to me so i kind of just weave that in there brain tool number two which is labeling emotions using it sounds like mm. so picture this right you've got a friend who's struggling and they're venting to you and they're really just expressing, you know, how much they're, they're struggling at work with their boss. They're under so much pressure and they don't know what to do and they hate their job. And you sit there and look at them and think to yourself, I don't know what to say to you. Mm. I'm tongue tied. Like I, you, you sound like you're having such a terrible time and I just don't, I can't find the words to express myself. So in that situation, the one thing you can do to be empathetic is do what psychologists do. And it's called emotional labeling. It's where you share how you think they feel based on what they've said. And it looks a little bit like this. You'd say, hey, it sounds like you feel a little bit overwhelmed and defeated at work and you're feeling under pressure but unable to complete um, your job and, and perform your best because of the way your manager is treating you. And when you do this, that process of putting their emotions into words, which is called effect labeling when we do it on ourselves, but you can do it on other people too. Not only does that help them process their emotion because you're putting the words there, but it's also showing that you're understanding and hearing what they're saying. And the best part is, even if you get it wrong, even if you, you label their emotions in the wrong way, they'll come back and tell you, oh no, I actually feel like this. And suddenly you've created more understanding in that moment. Yeah, that's 100% right. And you've given them an opportunity. I think the thing is when you say that to them as well, they're probably not, let's be frank, because they're feeling or they might be overwhelmed with emotion and so on. They're probably not going to listen to every single word you say. But the fact that you've, like that after the, the words that come after feel are often the ones they'll look out for. And even if you get it right, you create a bit of an anchoring point for them to say, no, it's something more severe than that or less severe than that or something different to that, as you said you get those same words back when they start to actually help themselves describe it and you're allowing them to affect label themselves. And once they can come to that resolution, then you can start to go into the depth and, and uh, have that conversation around it because they can find the language because often people don't have the language to do so because they don't know what's wrong. Absolutely. And on that affect labeling themselves point, which is incredible because when you put those emotions into words, there's a whole body of research that shows 
you basically switch the processing in your brain from processing that emotion and all the parts that, that are associated with that in the brain to processing the language and the meaning behind it. And so it actually kind of turns down the volume on your emotional response, whatever that might be. It makes it easy to manage those emotions. Mm, makes a ton of sense to me. That's awesome. So that's brain tool number two. You know, if you've got a friend who's struggling, you don't know what to say. Just say, it sounds like you're feeling and then express how you think they're feeling to show that you're listening to them and you're empathizing. Absolutely nailed it. And I think that leads nicely into brain tool number three, which is focus on what, not why. And the mm-hmm. way I want to frame this, mate, is have you, uh, I know the answer to this, but have you ever been late to work? Yeah. <laughs> no, sure. I'm so organized. This is the best. Now, when you were, when you were late to work, um, what did your boss, what, what did your boss normally say? Um, usually just uh, reprimanded me. Like you're late again, Sam, five minutes past, you're meant to be here at nine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it goes down the merry round like that. And it's the exact same yeah. for me as well. There was always an implication that you were late from the get-go without an understanding of what actually transpired. And it was a mm. classic of, I used to get always, why are you late? And already there, you're on the back foot having to explain yourself. And I think people generally have a tendency to ask why other people are certain, feeling a certain way of why they've done stuff. And let's be frank, Normally, people have no bloody idea a lot of the time, right? And asking that question compounds the pressure on them to find out. So they scramble for an answer without giving you something necessarily mm. sincere. And it can, again, push them to experience a lot of reactance, which is imposing on their free will. And so I think the main thing to be mindful of is before you jump to a why you, are you feeling this or why you feel this, actually start with the more surface level things, the what. Um, and that means you can more, more likely to get downstream to the why eventually. Yeah. And that why question, you think about that. As soon as you ask someone why, you're asking them to justify their position. You're asking them to defend themselves. And we've kind of covered this in earlier episodes. As soon as someone has to defend themselves psychologically, we we react the same way we, we would be defending our own body in terms of the brain. Same processes. So they're on the back foot. They're, you know, fists up. Absolutely. And we want to bring their fists down, as you said. And so mm. when you bring this into practice, I've sort of got... I'll call it three or four steps when you're like actually having and initiating this conversation. Again, leveraging your affect labeling, it sounds like. But I think the first thing, someone comes to you, right? And we've done this before together, to be fair. It's the simple question is nothing other than what's happened. After you've asked, can I ask you a few Mm. questions? Hey, what's happened? Right? And the person starts to speak and that's when you're putting your listening hat on. You're looking at for the emotion-laden words you're using. You're looking for the reasoning that they're giving. You give that positive, positive affirmation. You nod. You say, yep can see that you give that positive affirmation. And then once they've stopped, then you can ask the follow-up questions based on what you've heard. You use the language they've given. If they use the word angry, use the word back at them, angry. If they mention a specific tennis game that was lost, mention the tennis game. Because the moment you start to mention those things, it shows that you've been listened. And then here's the kicker with step four, which is ongoing, is you want to provide some input here and there, but don't always just base it off your personal experience. The classic case is when someone says, hey, I'm feeling this. Oh, I totally get that. The other day, I'll tell you what, this person literally did the exact same thing to me. You're on a five-minute rant, which is cathartic for yourself, but then you end up loading the person on with your own personal stuff, which means I haven't even had time to deal with their own. And so brain tool number three is just really focusing. Once you've actually understood the emotions they're going through, you've got their permission, focus on those what-based questions because, again, you're helping them find out what exactly they're feeling and why they're feeling it eventually, but don't uh, don't do that up front. That's brain tool number three. Focus on what, not why. Don't ask why. Don't ask why. Not because you don't want to know, but because you don't want them to feel shitty because you have to ask them to justify what they did. Um, 
Um, yeah, I really like that. I had a thought and it's gone. That's okay. So. It's fine. And by the way, just to add color <laughs> to that, because I, I want to be mindful. I don't want people to think that don't ask why, but you can ask why if you're 15, 20, 30 minutes into the conversation. Eventually, and you might pose them as a question like, hey, it's an interesting one, mate. Like you've said all these different things. Like what are some reasons or why do you think you might be feeling that? And now once they've got data, to choose from based on what they've said, they can at least pe- grab some of the answers they've given you mm. and then trace down because you're taking them on a journey to to understand that eventually. Um, and yeah, put the put the guards down and fist down, as you said. Yeah, it's that what is kind of opening the door and then you're listening as they're coming through that door to everything going on rather than just, you know, sham- shutting the door in their face and saying, you know, why? 100%. Straight away. And you're entering the door together. <laughs> yes, you're going through. You're opening the door for them. You're, you're giving them the opportunity to enter. You're not pushing them through. Open sesame. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of door analogies. I don't know why. Um, speaking of opening and closing your door, comes to brain tool number four. And so for some people, myself included at some points in my life, we find it really hard to imagine what other people are thinking. You know, hard to project as I talked about before. And the reason would be that theory of mind skills. Maybe we're just not as good at internalizing or interpreting other people's emotional states, or we're not as imaginative because we haven't had those experiences. Not our fault, just the way it is. And so if you're one of those people who finds it really, really hard to think about what another person's thinking, then you might need to improve your theory of mind skills. And you can actually do that with a really simple brain tool. And that's by reading great non-fiction books, I'm talking Pulitzer Prize winning works, incredible works, because this has been shown to improve the theory of mind. Mate, I'm uh, I'm leaning in here because, Ian, we evangelize reading books all the time, but I don't necessarily think people, or myself included, really trace the benefits downstream to how it can improve the emotion-laden states. We obviously think about it more from a functional lens, which is, oh, I'm going to get this particular thing and this is going to improve how I execute on these outcomes, as opposed to saying, hey, this can actually help well, like being more well-rounded within the emotional sphere, so to speak. Mm, yeah, exactly. We, we often don't encapsulate how that impacts us on, on a longitude viewpoint from an emotional lens and i said non-fiction but i actually meant fiction mm. so there was actually a paper um published in 2013 by david kidd and emmanuel castano which found reading literary fiction improves theory of mind basically what they did is they got five groups of people and they asked you know one group to read amazing books we're talking hemingway um we're talking some of the greatest authors of all time. Then they had another group read average books. And then they had some of the other groups not read at all. And at the start of the, the study, they all tested them on this specific theory of mind test, which tested their skills and the test at the end. And what they found was those who read the really incredible pieces of art, these really, really great uh, books improved the most by far. Wow. And this has been replicated um, five or six times since this study. Um, so it's held up to some degree. Um, but I think the most important outcome f- from it was the the authors of the paper, the people who produced this, David David Kidd and Emmanuel Castano, said it wasn't just books. Mm. I also suggest that this theory of mind can be improved by engaging with really, really amazing works of art. And so what that might look like these days is, you know, an incredibly well-produced movie or documentary or Netflix series, or binge. We're not talking reality TV. We're talking something that has serious art and merit because 
by engaging with this kind of materials, you are internalizing the nuances of the characters presented within them and then their emotional states and improving your theory of mind as you go. Mm. I think it traces back as well, right? Because you're saying like, as you said, it internalizes, which I to- I'm totally with because it's the opportunity to interact with stimuli that is of this type. And it's also giving you the opportunity to practice, especially if you self-reflect, right? And you might ask yourself when you're reading these non-fiction books, hey, why, what, what is this person feeling? Why might they be feeling this? And like those mm. moments or these, let's call them the opportunities for reflection while you're going through this, like goes into what Huberman talks about all the time, Andrew Huberman, um, self-directed neuroplasticity. It's opportunities for these things to go into action sets that then has have that feedback loop, which is the rewiring of your brain. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it, like opportunities. And the, the other side of the opportunities is you getting multiple viewpoints of different mm, characters. Yeah, for sure. So you're really getting a look inside the heads of different of different people. And by doing so, you're kind of understanding the the relationship, the interpersonal relationships between them and then the affective relationships too. Um, so if you wanted to use this tool, basically what the study suggested was read a great book, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning or equivalent, something really, really amazingly written for 20 minutes a night, which is what the study conducted over a month. But you could just do what I do, which is you know, read a great book each night. Or, you know, watch an incredibly written Netflix series or mm. watch something that's consume something that's an incredible piece of art that has human characters involved on a daily basis or on an ongoing basis. And by doing so, you're going to have this osmosis improvement of your empathy for improving your theory of mind skills. Makes it a ton of sense. Brain tool number four, reading a Brain great number four. book. Read a great book. Let's uh, let's trace up, shall we, Sam, and uh, go through these brain tool summary time. Mm, let's do it. Let's recap. Absolutely. Brain tool number one, permission-based empathy. When someone comes to you with an issue, even if it's not an issue, it's a good thing, just asking permission, hey, can I ask you a few questions? Can I actually understand it? Means that someone will be more likely to open, open up to you because they feel in control of the situation. You've given them a choice. Doing this decreases defensiveness and means that you're more likely to help them arrive at understanding themselves through the understanding the entire situation itself. Brain tool number one, permission-based empathy. Mm, and brain tool number two is if you're struggling for words, for what to say when someone is expressing their emotions to you, the easiest thing to do to be more empathetic is say, it sounds like you're feeling and label how they're feeling. This will help them to process those emotions and also shows that you're listening and give them an opportunity to comment on that. That's brain tool number two. Sounds like you're feeling. Brain tool number three, focus on what, not why? In the same way, when people are late, people always come with generally an implication, which is why are you late? It's the same thing with based on how you feel and why you're feeling. Don't ask why you're feeling. Simply start with a few what-based questions, what happened, what's going on with some active listening, positive affirmation, and some input based on your personal experience, but not the whole shebang. That way, at least, you're creating that space for them to have opportunities to understand what they're going through, which is the main aim of the game. You are a coach, not just a lecturer up the front of a classroom. Brain number three, focus on what, not why. Yes. Or a detective asking why. Ooh. So, don't know why I dropped that. Brain tool number four. Sherlock is, Holmes? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, brain tool number four is read a great book or consume a great TV series or a great movie on a regular basis because there is research out there that shows by consuming great works of art, you actually improve your theory of mind skills, which will help you be 
more empathetic because you can understand and project what people are thinking and how they're feeling more easily. And that's brain tool number four. That's a wrap up with these brain tools, but always, Sam, we've got to go with this 80-20. What's the big takeaway from this week? I think my 80-20 is empathy starts with allowing yourself to feel what another feels. And sometimes that might feel bad because it's shared pain, but if you embrace it and communicate it, you're being empathetic. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. And it, it lines really nicely with mine as well because my takeaway from this week is empathy starts with giving space for someone to speak and to be heard. Your job, mm. do not close the space. The moment you close the space, you close off the opportunity to communicate, which is exactly what you said, Sammy. So open the space, make sure that space is sacrosanct. And as long as someone can spend a fair bit of time there, that's the aim of the game. Well, we're very pithy this week. <laughs> Poetic. How's those eighty twenties? Reading, reading some, uh, reading some non, well, reading some fiction books. <laughs> reading some fiction books, not nonfiction, <laughs> fiction books. And that that wraps us up for this week for Brain Tools thirty four on empathy. I hope you've learned something. I hope you discovered a tool you can use next time uh, you're in a situation that requires you to be empathetic. If you are loving the show, you're enjoying the show, please feel free to go follow us on all the usual platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn, on Instagram, Brantles Podcast, on Twitter, um, uh, and leave us a review on, on uh, iTunes if you are loving it. Sounds like an absolute plan It's a to big me. if. It's not a big if. Just, just go do it because you love just us. Peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, that's... That's all I've got for this week, sorry. Mate, same with me. We'll see you next week. See you next week.